there. Welcome to the Collide Podcast. This is Willow Weston, the founder and director of Collide, and I am so excited to hand you this podcast today. I think it's going to challenge you and make you think in a good way. Uh, I had Chris Hope on during this Advent series that we're doing. I really wanted to do a series where we lean into Emmanuel, this idea of God with us, the power of God's presence in our lives, and got to have a really unique conversation with him, not only about the power of Jesus's presence in our lives, but the power of our presence in other people's lives. Chris is the executive director of Underground Ministries and the founder of One Parish, One Prisoner, which is a program that equips churches to practice resurrection through re-entry support and healing relationships with incarcerated men and women as they're released back out of prison. And we had a phenomenal conversation. I think it will challenge you. So get your seatbelts on and get ready. Um, There is an F-bomb in this. So if you have little ones in the car or that's going to offend you, you can fast forward through that. But this conversation is uh, pretty impactful. And in fact, I think it's going to not only make you experience the love of Jesus in a greater way, but it's going to fill you with that love so much so that you're going to be challenged to want to lean into sharing it with people who need to hear it most. And so I hope you enjoy this conversation today. Chris, I'm so excited to sit down with you and have this conversation. I just shared with you offline, but I'll share with you for people listening in that we're in this time of Advent and really leaning into the Emmanuel God with us. And I wanted to have, you know, in the month of of Advent, about four different guests where we could sort of talk about the power of presence, the power of God being with us. And I had a conversation with a friend, a mutual friend uh, that you and I have, Mike Neely, and he suggested you. And the second he suggested you, I was like, yes, nailed it. I want this guy in the podcast. I'm so glad that I get to sit down and talk to you today. It's an honor to be here, Will. It's long overdue that we get to hang out and what better way than to have a focused topic. Yeah, totally. Hey, um, I have to ask you, and I'm putting you on the spot here because I just noticed your hat, Swan's Rule. Is that yeah. just literally a love of birds or what's what's going on there? Well, I live in Washington Skagit Valley, uh, one county south of you, Willow, and it is the home to thousands of massive angelic magical trumpeter swans which are bigger than my kindergartner that cruise through the sky right around this time of year and lay down in the folds of the cold fields and i'm in love with them and i wrote a whole chapter about them in my book and uh when i bought this cool felt hat and there's a corporate logo it was really easy to rip it off and say swans rule <laughs> i love that I so much I want to talk to you about your book, Um, but maybe we'll circle back around and get back to that chapter, Swan's Rule. But I had to ask you, that's that's a cool hat. You should start selling those. I might buy one of those. (laughs) Yeah, selling your favorite (laughs) bird. Not everyone's resume includes what yours does. Jail chaplain, minister to Mexican gang and migrant worker communities. I mean, on and on the work that you're doing. Tell us about this this work that God has sort of unfolded in your life, underground ministries and how it came to be. Oh, I get, I get some practice in distilling 
this story to this to, uh, to this question. Hopefully, I'll get even more succinct right now. Um, I think you know we're always trying to find out what our story is as we look over our shoulder. Uh, for me, the best way I can understand what's brought me to this work is I grew up an overchurched evangelical kid, and the um, the upside to being overchurched, hopefully, is that you hear the Bible stories a lot. And the Bible, as I'm, especially if I'm reading a lot of Bible stories to my kindergartner right now, they're full of adventures. It's mm-hmm. not a lot of dogma. I mean, nearly 2,000 years of Western religion has tried to has tried to codify the Bible into dogma, but there's very little. It's stories. It's adventures. It's mysteries. And then when Jesus is the rabbi in his community, he offers very little dogma. He tells stories, and then he's tells people, follow me, and let's live into some new stories. Um, and so I think I got that intuitively as a kid. We're reading these amazing stories. And then a church is the place where we said, okay, now raise your hand if you want to follow Jesus. And I think as a kid, even though I couldn't cuss as a very, you know, uh, well-behaved little church boy, I think everything in my heart was like, fuck yeah, let's do this. Let's let's go raise the dead. Let's go hang out with the tax collectors and prostitutes. Let's be on an adventure from village to village. Let's throw off all the anxieties of property management. I grew up in a wealthy suburb of Southern California and let's just throw off um, all the duties of being part of a economic system and we can be free and go love people. It sounded wonderful. It sounded better than going to AP classes uh, when I was the leader in our, our high school youth group. And I think after years I realized, Oh, following Jesus is church code for keep coming back and be a good little boy or girl. No one's trying to go follow and live out the ways of Jesus. And so I think early on, I departed from, I was going to go to like um, some evangelical colleges. Instead, I found this one program that helped um, suburban kids go live in one of America's hardest inner cities called Mission Year. It was a great program. It was a one-year experience kind of to disciple us out of the suburbs and to get to know our neighbors for a year. And I, I lived, I worked at a homeless shelter and a center for AIDS services where folks were dying of AIDS and had wigs on and a lot of lipstick and nasal cannulas and were hilarious. And just my politics, my worldview, everything completely fell apart. And I had more joy than I'd, I thought was possible living in hard cities. Then I went to a university in California in Berkeley, and then I just wanted to study more theology, but I didn't want to go back to the academy. I wanted to live these stories until I found, uh, a liberation theologian that really excited me in the far northwest of Washington State, in Skagit County, I couldn't pronounce, but he was writing a book called Reading the Bible with the Damned. And so he, rather than just studying liberation theology, he was practicing it and reading the scriptures directly with the outcasts of our time, who I thought the people were surrounding Jesus in the first place. It'd be great to go read the script, study the scriptures. And so I came up here 17 years ago to read the Bible in a jail with Bob as like my kind of underground seminary. And I thought I would do that for a year or so. But the gang members, the guys who were my age then, early 20s, ink on their faces and their necks and their hands, they were hilarious. And they were they were brilliant. They were exegeting or hermeneuting the stories about where the tax collectors or prostitutes would be in our time, what the um, where where Hades and Gehenna would be, what where the outcasts of our towns and where the lepers are. They could understand the power dynamics in every gospel interaction. And so they were great Bible study members, but then they invited me to come visit them one-on-one in the late hours of the jail to do pastor visits. And um, 
I didn't want to do that. Pastor was still a bad word for me. I thought it was like the CEO of a religious social club. But, the, but they realized they weren't clowning me. I thought they were just kind of clowning me because I'm like the white religious guy doing Bible studies. And they're like, no, like God sent us you to be our pastor. We don't have one. And so I started understanding pastor as a shepherd. And they were inviting me into late night adventures all across the valley. Um, and so I felt like gang members kind of called me into the, the stories that we were studying in the jail. And so for the next 10 years, I just followed young men around who were kind of the black sheep, the lost sheep of our uh, community. And um, I fell in love with these guys. They taught me how to be a pastor, they taught me how to read the Bible differently, and helping my friends come home from jail and then from distant prison facilities. I grew to understand that as welcoming people out of the tombs of our age and mass incarceration as a mass tomb of social death system. And reentry maybe is a way of practicing resurrection. And then we could get into more of this, but just the, 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 the punchline, I guess, is what we're doing now at Underground Ministries with our One Parish, One Prisoner program is rather than just traveling and speaking and preaching lots of churches and saying, hey, we're just kind of the cool thing out there helping some gang members send us your donations. We started saying, what if every church walked with one person coming home from prison right to their town? And we guided them through a two-year journey that helps them write their first letters, helps them figure out housing, helps them talk about addiction and mental health and the wounds in the prison system as well as the wounds hiding in the church and that they might be mutually transformative for the church and the person coming home from prison the same way that it was mutually transformative for me. Mm. I mean, this is, this is an incredible story, Chris. I mean, you talked uh, a few minutes ago about the idea that when you read the Bible and Jesus says, come and follow me, he's saying, come and let's live into some some stories. And it sounds like you kind of took him at his word and he has blown the top off your story and you're living this crazy adventure that you never, you know, saw happen from doing the mission year to your time with Bob and learning how to read the Bible with the damned and starting to minister to the outcasts and never thought of yourself as pastor because you said that's like being a CEO of a religious club. And here you are running this ministry where you spent so many years seeing what life was like for people who are incarcerated. And now you're uh, coming up with ways to actually give them life again. You mentioned resurrection. I want to come back to so many things you just talked about. Um, but before I ask you all the things I want to ask you about it, you had this time period, you say, where they were starting to see in you, Pastor. They were starting to say, come and visit me. And you were learning so much from them. Mm. What did you learn that you had no idea about the life of an incarcerated person? You talk about, and I know your website says there's 2 million people locked away, which you say is creating this mass disconnection. For people listening, I, I would say most of them aren't incarcerated <laughs> that are listening to this today. So, like, what did you learn from incarcerated people about that life and what it's like? I learned, I mean, it just seems like a duh now, but it was, it might be new to listeners the way it was new to me when I started. How much chaos and trauma and pain has been the daily bread of most people that end up in jail. Um, 
in that maybe one way to say it is that there's it's, it's kind of trendy to talk about second chances, the second chance ethic or second chance employers, people coming home from prison. And the best pushback I've heard is like, no, we're talking first chance. Um, that we're, we're oftentimes dealing with kids that never even had a fighting chance of even staying in school, having to, having uh, a safe home, let alone a home. We're dealing with mass poverty, domestic violence, um, immigration, uh, racism. There's so much pain in the kind of folks that are just surviving, that end up in juvie, that end up in jail, that end up going to prison. Um, it rarely are whatever crime they ended up getting committing and they were caught for okay. is normally just one sad blip in a long, much larger tragedy, a kind of saga length tragedy in each person I met. So getting to know their stories and putting together the pieces of social participation and belonging in our community upon the release is normally not just re-entry, but it's really entry the first time. It's helping individuals at age 30 or 40 build a life in the community that they never had after kindergarten. Mm -hmm. Which is so huge because it seems like this major holistic approach of recognizing you can't just slap a bandaid on this, put someone behind bars and sort of punish them or something for a certain amount of time. And then when they get out, they're supposed to have learned their lesson and start over and make different choices. You're talking about family dynamics, abuse and neglect, addiction. And so you you started creating uh, this ministry that was going to sort of tackle all the woundedness in it. And tell us about how you came up with the idea of these restorative relationships of kind of like bringing people alongside these wounded men and women who need a lot more than just a timeout. Well, I, it, it, the first 10 or 12 years or so of my work working with um, gang-affected men and women here in Skagit County, it's, it's, it went pretty deep with individuals and it was pretty longitudinal, sociologists would say, like, you know, across the course of their life. It's not like, well, we're a resource or an agency that case manages during this window and by. There's a lot of long-term relationship going. You can't have big numbers when you're kind of doing that depth with individuals. And so it, it was never a scalable model where we're just trying to be deep and be faithful here in Skagit County. And I was inspired by um, Wendell Berry, who wasn't trying to have a huge farm. If anyone knows the, 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 the essays and the novels and the poetry of Wendell, Bar Wendell Berry, he has a very small farm and through the depth and the intimacy of his relationship with that small piece of land, he could write widely. And that was always my goal was to have a, a deep but small work with gang-affected men in Skagit County. But it was when my, my book Wanted came out and we'd kind of end our talks at churches and seminaries and bookstores and conferences. And there's the Q&A time and always someone would ask, well, what can we do? And I never really had an answer um, other than, you know, I, I didn't know what the different legislative options are of reform going on in that county or that state at the time. Um, I had even forgot to invite people to like, join our newsletter. Or please support us. We can hire one or two people. But then someone early on brought me a very poorly typed out little prospectus that said OPOP in all four corners, one parish, one prisoner. There are roughly the same amount of churches in Washington state. 
as there are incarcerated people. Now, those numbers have changed a little bit, both the number of churches in the last eight years or so, uh, and uh, incarceration populations have changed as well in Washington State. But that got me thinking. So I started floating that at the next Q&A. It's like, here's an idea. What if every church didn't have to just vote differently? Please do. But um, when it comes to incarceration-related bills, nor start a whole organizing ministry. But what if it was just relationships? What if a whole church has everything that one person needs? Um, mm. That would empty the prison system. It would it would interrupt mass incarceration on a mass scale if every church did this. And I think it would change every church. What do you guys think? And I always thought I'd be calling their bluff. The churches would be like, mm, no, no, we'd rather pray for or send a check to you guys do the broken people management. We don't want to be in relationship with someone coming home from prison. But they, it was the opposite. They called my bluff. They said, great, where do we sign up? And I was like, oh, sorry, that was just a project of thought. We don't have a program. And enough people said, well, we'll build it. Um, and so we started doing that. And so about five or six years ago, we started piloting with three churches, a large Catholic, a Jesuit parish in Seattle, a tiny Methodist rural church um, here in the Northwest. I'm sorry, up in remote sketch County and then in a kind of like mid-level Presbyterian suburban church in which I'm in right now. And then now we have 39 churches and a kind of 24 month learning module program and four people on staff. So that's kind of how it went from an idea to, I don't want to just build a 30 person organization, which kind of maintains the silo. Like, Hey, leave it to the experts. What I want to do is flip the vision that every person coming home from prison doesn't need an agency. They need relationships in their hometown. They need relationships that aren't just paid case managers. Um, and I think this can help the church practice the mysteries it sings about. He's hmm. in grace. We believe that God has something special in store for your life. Do you need some help discerning next steps in your calling or wishing that God could do something big with your life, but you don't know where to start? Or maybe you're tired, overwhelmed, or burned out and need some encouragement and inspiration to get back up. Whatever season or life phase you're in, we've got an incredible online course called Women of Impact that will equip and empower you with tools to fully live out your purpose in this life. This course comes with over 70 teaching sessions taught by over 50 incredible women and features topics like discerning direction, dreams and vision, health for a purpose, impact in every chapter, and more. You'll also get beautifully designed journals and incredible resource lists. This course was created for women on the go, meaning you can access it anytime, anywhere, on any device. Now is the time to get inspired and equipped to make an impact with your life. This robust course is available for only $149. You can learn more or register by going to wecollide.net forward slash women of impact. Talk to us about why you think this is practicing resurrection. Like put, put some words around that for us, because I think that's such a fascinating idea. Yeah. Um, our whole two-year journey of one personal prisoner, and before that, just kind of my the metaphor I used for our own case management, was Jesus's organizing a community around the resurrection of Lazarus, who is his friend. And so in John 11, um, the resurrection isn't a metaphor. It's, it's an actual person that comes back from the dead. Um, and it's not just Jesus as well. Of course, Jesus came back from the dead, and that's the, the 
the conquering over the grave that we sing about just at Easter. But before Jesus' resurrection, he's in the business of bringing someone out of the tombs and gathering and including the local community to participate in this practice. And so we kind of take the Lazarus story as our blueprint. First off, Jesus had a relationship with Lazarus. And so that's the first part is we help people be in relationship and connect them with that kind of sacramentally enter into Jesus's friendship with Lazarus, which is what makes Jesus weep, which is what prompts the resurrection work ahead, this friendship. Because when you love someone, when you know someone in there, you can't normalize death. Hey, well, everyone dies. Everyone could have said, hey, we've always had prisoners. But when you love someone, that was my whole story because I knew some guys in jail. It was so different than just like a documentary about prison. Like when you know someone, you'll move mountains for them. And then secondly, Jesus invites a community to roll away the stone. Um, he didn't just say, Jesus didn't miraculously didn't make the heavy structural barriers disappear. And Jesus didn't do it himself, nor did he say, hey, Lazarus, if you're really resurrected, um, show us. Um, Jesus involved the community to do the very unspiritual feeling work of just roll, rolling up their sleeves and pushing against heavy stuff. And so that's, the stones are our metaphor for all those structural barriers to reentry, housing, getting a job, getting a car, getting your driver's license back, going to the different courts to negotiate your debt that's been growing at 12% compounding every year you were down, to negotiate payments, to take the hold off your license so you can get your license, so you can drive to your parole appointments or to your job. Because when you're driving with your license suspended, that's the number one reason people go back into prison. So these are some of the, the heavy, unromantic, pain-in-the-ass barriers to roll away, which is resurrection work. And then thirdly, once they roll away the stone, Lazarus comes out looking like a scary mummy, looking like death man, looking like nightmare guy. And I think if the stones are the metaphor for all the structural reentry barriers that we have to roll away when we love someone coming home, if the two, sorry, I skipped even talking about the tombs as I think I talked about that earlier as like where we throw away human beings in Washington, in, in, in the United States have a big problem with throwing human beings away, call it a landfill, call it dumpsters. As I do in my first book, I call them the tombs now where we're saying you're dead to us. Hmm. And, um, Jesus is welcoming Lazarus back from the tombs. We roll away the stones, but then the layers we, we call it, if the stones are the structural barriers, Lazarus comes out and Jesus doesn't say, Hey, take that off. As we oftentimes say to folks, Hey, change, like, quit being a drug addict, you know, quit, Drop that gang identity. Show us you're reformed. But Jesus, again, invites the community closer to touch him, to get close to the person or the specter that they fear. And he says, unbind him. It's just gorgeous and prophetic language he uses to unbind him. And so what if that's how we invite communities to identify the layers, whether it's addiction, mental health needs, health needs, gang identity, um, who is the real person underneath? So we're not telling people to change coming home from prison. We're gently helping unbind them. That happens in relationship. We discover who we really are underneath the layers of our defense mechanisms. And guess what? Folks in churches have their layers too. And so oftentimes folks in churches are seeing not only the real Lazarus, the real community member that God made beneath their felony charges or their defense mechanisms, but folks in churches are peeling off some of their fancier religious layers of good church lady and upstanding community member. They're talking, the real them is coming out, which are normally cooler and funnier 
with histories of addiction and some major um, mistakes that church members have made that they're able to talk about. So for us, that's what we mean by practicing resurrection is looking at the Lazarus story, that this is a template for practicing reentry and welcoming people back to new life together. Um, and it involves structural adjustments in our communities and it involves interpersonal um, healing. Hmm. It's interesting. I, I've always loved the, in John 11, where Jesus says, take off the grave clothes. And I've always loved it because you think that story should end with Jesus resurrected Lazarus. He's alive. Like only God could do that. Exclamation point, the end. And there's something about Jesus that isn't okay with us just kind of living like we're dead or kind of living like, you know, we're, we're out of jail, but we're not fully thriving. And there's this sense, I think, where, you know, you talk about the tombs and sort of sending people into isolation and being okay. It's kind of like out of sight, out of mind, like just get out of jail and don't cause more trouble. And that's not fully living. That's still living with grave clothes on. It's kind of like, just don't cause us any issues, but we don't really want to like unbind you. And I think you're bringing up this beautiful idea that take off the grave clothes and like help unbind people who are still living like they're wearing death and darkness Mm. and woundedness and be a part of resurrecting them into new life. I think that's, that's just a, a beautiful, a beautiful thing you're inviting us to see and be a part of. I love it so much. Thanks. I mean, it's the, the metaphor is getting pretty extended and elaborate now, but it, it, it just keeps, <laughs> the story just keeps working for us. The, the, the story flies. There's a lot more details and stories I'm not going into right now, but I'm just trying to sketch out the outline. Yeah, for sure. So when you uh, see a, a parish or a church come alongside and practice this kind of resurrection and the power of presence, the power of, you know, we have a God who says, I am with you. And yet we often live out of faith that says, I'm not with you. Like I'm like, you go figure it out. And when you sort of satisfy me or don't scare me or whatever, then I might be with you. But otherwise, or if you're like me, I'll be with you. But we have a Jesus who shows up on people scene. We talk about all the time here. Like he collides with people where they're at. He walks alongside them. He meets them there in the mess, in the pain, in the hardship. And you're inviting people into that. How have you, like, do you have an example of how that's actually a, a beautiful relationship that's ensued with a prisoner and parishioners, people in the church that you can share? Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, which one do I want to tell? Um, <laughs> um, I'll, uh, I'll go three really quick and try to go deeper on the third. Um, one, a guy named, named Paul who um, was, in, was in prison for 19 years. And when he, it was for a crime that um, he committed when he was in Washington state, though he wasn't from Washington state. And so he had, not only was he away for 19 years and most people that long have no social connections, but he never knew anyone in Washington state. So he's going to be released to Washington state with zero connections. And he applied, we connected him with a church called St. Paul's, which was nice. Um, And they fell in love with him and they kind of the honeymoon of like, you know, in the first months of like, we're all getting along and this isn't the sweet and aren't we all great. 
um, that, that has to get challenged at some point. This was just a week before um, the whole state went into a sudden quarantine. And that first week, there was a banquet dinner. They had already planned his housing. They did such good. They followed um, all our modules. They did a fundraiser. They found housing and recovery home just down the street. They had schedule set up and opening up about the mental health problems in their family. Because this, this gentleman had his mother with severe mental health problems that led to a pretty traumatic childhood. Mm-hmm. And they were talking about their mental health challenges. And that built a bond to trust one another when it came time to really do the reentry work. If Are you going to be there when you pick me up? Or are you just going to be some nice church people that were pen pals, but I'm going to have some new girlfriend I met kind of pick me up? Um, so they hashed out the release plan and they in picking him up and figuring out housing and housing became very tricky. They couldn't find something. So they went against our policy and found a situation in one of the parishioners' homes. Um, and they figured out how to be roommates and they figured out how to talk about it. And he actually wanted to come to the church, which is not part of the program. You're not expected to come to the church or be a Christian. This is about the churches walking out, practicing resurrection, regardless of Lazarus's belief systems or synagogue attendance, so to say. But he ended up wanting to come to the church. And um, he got married in that church just last month because uh, he proposed to his work supervisor and they, they got along great. And so that's, that's, a, that's a really happy story. Um, another one here, there's a guy... Um, with uh, tattoos like the kind of like clown triangles above and blow his eyes, like the kind of scary stay away from me. I'm a psycho gang member kind of tattoos mm-hmm. um, yeah, that he built a really sweet relationship with several white haired church ladies here at this Presbyterian church. And um, this, this church's team did amazing work going in and visiting him. And driving down there and getting on a visiting list and sitting in the visiting room and posing for those family pictures that are normally just for baby mamas uh, sitting next to them in the visiting room. And there's these church ladies and deacons sitting with this guy with tattoos all up and down his face. Um, so that's an icon I have kind of, I, I treat as an icon. I have that photo in our office here. Um, but when he came home, he came home March 2nd, 2020, and getting his health insurance and mental health evaluations and transferring his meds. Um, but eight days in, everyone went into sudden quarantine and I'm not saying for or against quarantine measures, but just as a parable of what happens when you suddenly take away presence, no one even had, you know, zoom figured out quite then he, um, was suddenly very alone. His, his material needs were met, but he didn't have the relationships with him, checking in with him, walking with him. He had been going to the pound for already twice. That first week with one of the team members who normally went to the pound to let dogs out of the cages and walk them as like a community service thing. And she's like, you want to, this is what I do. You want to come with me? He was like, hell yeah. And they love just walking with the animals, getting them out of cages. But then everyone went into their homes and he lost presence. And so within weeks, he started calling up his old street connections. who didn't care about, you know, social distancing. And within days more, he was using the drugs they were using and then breaking a no contact order and picked up by parole. And then, um, even the parole officer wanted to make an example out of him. So went above, even though he had done, he had committed no new crimes. Um, they, their hearts were broken as they saw not only that he needed connection, but then they saw that the parole officers went above and beyond and threw him away for three years instead of a, a 90 day violation. So he's just getting out now three years later, um, again with this church. And so presence is everything. 
Yes, yes. There's a lot of resources, thankfully, needed coming out for reentry, but there's still not enough relationships. Mm-hmm. And mass incarceration, yeah, as you saw on our website, is really mass violence to relationships and community ties. Um, and so we're trying to repair presence in incarnate relationships. If you want, okay, that, that normally goes to Advent, if you want me to jump into Advent. Yeah, I do. I was going to say that's such a powerful image and it's weird that my mind goes to that place but my mom just died this last year she was a terrible alcoholic and it's it's amazing how her alcoholism grew worse the more that she was sort of isolated and people moved out of relationship with her because her alcoholism was so terrible, the worse it got and the more isolated she got and the more people exited relationship with her. And it's very interesting to me. And I know that's a weird place for me to go, but I I can imagine that everyone listening is like, yeah, the power of presence. And it makes me think about Jesus and this idea that God, like this God who loves us would come crashing down into earth because he sees all this mess and all this woundedness and show up on our scene. And his whole thing is like God with us, Emmanuel. Like he knew that the power of presence in our life is the only thing that can change us. You know, that, that it's so different though than so, so often how we're living out our faith where it's almost like people have to earn our presence. Like they have to be behaved. They have to be like us. We have to like what they're choosing. Otherwise they don't get our presence. We almost use our presence as a bargaining tool with people. And it's so interesting to me because you're describing like take presence away from someone and they're going to dismantle very quickly. Yeah. Well, given what I know about you, Willow, and some of what I would guess are the, the outlines of who might be listening to your podcast. Um, I, I, I want to speak on a, t- on a, on a theme that I normally don't get to, um, which is a lot of folks who are done with church, a lot of folks who are kind of maybe churched, but no, no longer feel like that's a relevant or needed place, but they're kind of haunted by the biblical story or haunted by Christ. And they're just trying to make f- sense of that. For me, there's not enough naming the heart of the problem and a lot of the kind of the deconstruction conversations happening right now, which is I grew up hearing, and I think most folks did, especially if you're around much evangelical teaching in your childhood, that a a kind of anti-presence of a a God story, uh, which is that there's a God that cannot stand human beings. There's a God who's so into God's holiness and God's uh, kind of retributive need for punishment justice on human beings that can't even stand to be near us, that needs to exile broken humanity towards eternal punishment, that even Jesus is not the presence of God in this story. Jesus is a substitutionary whipping boy um, who is destroyed and punished by the wrathful judge such that everyone else, we can say, okay, cool, he... I'm going to, yes, please, I'll take that switcheroo now that I can go hang out in heaven with the torturer eternally because someone else was tortured in my place. That is called the gospel for millions of people. 
And that is not a story of presence. That's not a story of a God who wants to come close to us. Quite the opposite. It was a God that is allergic to us and can't stand us. And so, so much so he needs to pour out wrath. And so I think in the name of Christianity, I think a vile cosmic narrative has been promoted en masse throughout our country for a long time. And it started in Northern Europe and it came through Charles Hodge and some uh, theologians on the East Coast a century or so. Um, and so for us to reclaim, I just, I just don't want us to kind of paper over it with talking about God's presence. We need to repent of a, a wildly antichrist story um, that has led to policies. I think mass incarceration is directly connected to a nation that worshiped a high punishing deity that wants to throw people away into an infernal underground that that theology in Northern European new heresy that's called gospel is the same nation that created a runaway problem of throwing away human beings into punishment realms. Mm -hmm. And so for us to repent of those theologies and to say that was gross and anti-Jesus is step one. And then we can start to say, hey, but there's a different, otherwise we're gaslighting people. We're just sprinkling in some nice stories at Christmas rather than saying, hey, no, there's been something completely abusive at the podiums for way too long. And that is anti-gospel. And the early church did not say our salvation is a substitutionary punishment, but the early church and the church fathers and mothers celebrated what you're saying. Well, oh, that the incarnation, Jesus becoming God's presence in the flesh, starting as a little baby, entering the world through the womb and between the legs of a poor migrant teenager. This is God's presence that wants to be with us in the flesh, the God that aches to be close to us, no matter how violent we are, knowing we'd probably betray him and kill him and torture him, and still wants to be with us and heal us and redeem us. That's good news. Um, but it's, 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 an, it's counter good news to a very bogus gospel we've, we've named and um, shouted down the throats and ears and eyes of kids in churches and church camps, including myself for way too long. Well, you certainly give us a lot to chew on there, Chris. <laughs> I'm going to have to walk away and really think about this further. Um, I'm, I'm wondering when you get this privilege to enter into relationship with someone who's only heard what you're calling kind of the anti-presence, like it's, you're saying it's not good news, but when you get the privilege to enter into relationship and share space with someone incarcerated mm -hmm. and you get to share with them the gospel, the good news, what's, what's the good news for them that comes out of your presence in your voice? I think whether I'm, I have an opportunity to articulate it, kind of the, summarize the story of Jesus and God's drawing near with us, if I'm, I'm already incarnating it myself, if I have chosen to draw near to them in a lockdown facility, and that I'm not disgusted by them, that I'm not afraid of them, and that I see them and I hear their story, and that they can see in my eyes and in my presence that I like them, that I enjoy them, I'm... I'm not only incarnating for them an experience of, of the character of God, but me, myself, I, I'm tasting 
what Jesus told us to taste. It's like Jesus says, do this and you'll get the heart of God. Go love your enemies and you will feel the enemy loving heart of God. Um, go visit the prisoner and you will experience my presence. So I think I, the more that I went to the jail and loved these guys that had committed domestic violence and cooked meth and committed drive-bys and they were funny as hell and they were, when they felt safe, were able to quake and weep and snots running down their nose and onto the table with the trauma they'd been through and the harm they've caused and the horror and the repentance inside of them. You just fall in love with them. And you're like, okay, either A, I'm more loving than God. Or the story of God has been completely bogus. And what I'm tasting now mystically is exactly how God sees all of us. That, that, that sinners are so freaking lovable. And that God is drawing near to how lovable we are. And is, is moved with compassion. And God sees us. And he sees the whole story. And God is constantly drawing near to us, whether it's in the garden or in Egypt or in the desert or the outcasts running further into the desert, or that God is continually pursuing us and drawing close to us and going, I haven't given up on you. You've betrayed my name. You've built idolatrous armies and temples and nations and religions that go against everything I told you. I freaking love you. Let's start over. Like you, you, you feel that when you love one person coming out of jail and the whole Bible makes sense. This is so simple. God is in love with these knuckleheads, all of us. And he keeps wanting to guide us back into this relationship. God is not disgusted with us. It's interesting. I I was going <laughs> to leave this to you and ask your thoughts, but you already mentioned it. But in Matthew 25, Jesus talking and he says, then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. It seems like the power of presence, it's, it's almost as though you're kind of painting this picture that when we give our presence and walk alongside someone who's hungry, thirsty, sick, a stranger in prison, an outcast, people marginalized. It is actually in that that we experience the presence of Jesus. And it's almost like we're missing out on on something so rich and so deep when yes. we separate ourselves from those hurting and those in need and those who scare us and those we don't understand. We're actually the ones missing out. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I'd like that's instead of like, hey, that's Matthew 25 is the kind of that's the little social work proof text that like, oh, yeah, you should also go help these kind of groups of foreigners and immigrants and the hungry and the homeless and the prisoner. That's also good to go help them. Jesus doesn't say go help them. He said, if you want to know me, this is how you know me. If you want to connect with me, this is how you connect with me. Here's here's my mystical existential address, the prison, the, the street corner. Like he doesn't say go to church and worship me. He never says worship me. He says, know me through these relationships. Um, and so for me, I was raised in evangelical tradition. It was really big on quiet time and devotionals. And those are good. I, I love the interior life of contemplation and reading. I need it. I think it helped me open up an interior spiritual space. 
But when I felt closest to Jesus was not when I was leading worship all those years. When I felt closest to Jesus was holding the hands of guys in jail. And I felt like God's presence was electrically alive in my mind, in my heart. I felt so close to God. And just like, I wasn't even close to it. It's like I was in God. It's like, I, it, I kept going back to the jail because I felt connected to God. Um, and I feel like that's not a weird, mystical anecdote Chris is offering. I think that's exactly what Jesus was talking about. Yeah, absolutely. So beautiful, Chris. I feel like I could ask you so many questions. In fact, I think we didn't get to half the things I wanted to ask you. Um, but I do want to ask you, as we're in this time of sort of leaning into the Emmanuel God at Advent, this waiting season, how uh, would you like to close up just your final thoughts on the the practicing resurrection and the season of Advent and the experience of a prisoner? Yeah, it's, I think, I mean, I would, I would hope anyone listening uh, would would really think about, especially in Washington, go to oneparishoneprisoner.org or through undergroundministries.org. And we really want to not just talk about this um, from pulpits or podcasts, but to help your community step into this practice with us. If you're outside of Washington State, still come to that website and we're, we're connecting parishes with different uh, relationships coming home from prison in other states as well. But especially in the season of Advent, I'd like to preach on this work in Advent because even before we had one person prisoner, when I was just waiting for some of my friends to come home from prison, I felt that like, oh, Advent helped me do reentry work, kind of a, a, a liturgy growing up of waiting, waiting for the arrival. Um, that there's a date on the calendar, you know, as a little kid, you see the, the advent calendar, you're waiting each little day, you open up, oh, I can't wait before you get to open your presence. And I think that kind of spirituality of anticipation and waiting helped me wait for two years for someone whose release date was a long way off. I'm like, Oh, I'm that's too far off. Advent helped me wait for the reentry, the release date as like Christmas day. And then kind of, then it, the metaphor switched the other direction. I started thinking about um, not only had Advent helped me work with incarcerated, um, but I think working with having someone with a release date and waiting for their arrival on the release date can help us understand Advent and can help us be people who can wait for the word to become flesh, just the prison letters um, become a person that you can wrap your arms around uh, for both, both for the, community anticipating their arrival to he appeared in the soul felt its worth the, the the appearance the appearance the arrival for the church to enjoy the friend coming home finally but for someone coming home from prison as well to wait for that day when this maybe gospel they've heard about in prison sermons or prison ministries they've heard the word but then for them for the the, the body to become flesh and blood and to wrap around them and to love them I just think Advent is such a good training. I don't think Advent in itself is worth a whole lot unless it helps us be better at waiting and embracing out in the world. Mm-hmm. Makes me think about how the angels showed up to the shepherds, right? The least of these and and said, I bring you good news of great joy for all people and how beautiful it would be if every incarcerated person was to reach their release date and felt like there were angels in a community 
just enveloping them with the good news. I bring you good news of great joy for you, right? Yeah, and the angels were celebrating because no one else was, right? Like it happened in a marginal spot, right? Like the, the prison releases are happening daily out in the darkness. And uh, maybe the angels are rejoicing. Um, so, yeah, I, I like that, that it's not an, it's rarely an event, whether it's the coming of Christ or our friends home from prison. It's rarely an event that's in the news or in the community bulletin. Um, but it's normally in the darkness on the outside of town that we get to w behold these mysteries. Hmm. Chris, I love talking to you. I know there's people who are going to go check out Underground Ministries. We'll put your website in our show notes. But also, how can they get a copy of your book, Wanted? It's called Wanted. Uh, look it up online. It's on Amazon or, you know, it's always nice to order through your uh, local independent bookstore. But it's Wanted on uh, Harper One Publishers. And uh, hopefully we'll be having another book coming out in the next year or so about everything you and I are talking about today, Willa. That's awesome. Thank you so much for hanging out today, Chris. It's so fun talking about it and get to know you better. Yeah, thank you for everything you're doing in this world to make it a better place. friend, I hope that you enjoyed that conversation and that it challenged you in a good way. I had a friend that used to say, Jesus wrecked my life. And she would follow it up with, he wrecked my life in a good way. And I think I just love the invitation that Chris gives us that when Jesus says, come and follow me, he's actually inviting us to live into some crazy adventurous stories. And certainly Chris has. And I don't know about you, but after that interview, I feel like I want to follow Jesus more into the places that he shows up, the places where people are thirsty and hungry and feel like a stranger and need clothes and they're imprisoned. And I know that if I follow him there, I'm going to experience his powerful presence there in a way that's gonna change me. And maybe even God will use my presence to change someone else. I hope that's what you took away from this interview. And I hope that in this Advent season, as you're counting down to Christmas, that you will know that the Emmanuel, God is with you He's showing up and meeting you where you're at, and He loves you there, as you are. And He wants to be with you. So friend, keep colliding, and we'll catch you next week.